Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer Podcast. We share the stories of dedicated Booster Club volunteers and the tools and strategies they use to run successful booster clubs. We also have sought out experts on fundraising, volunteer management, and running nonprofits to share best practices. Hosted by Robin Eisler and Evan Eisler, you won't want to miss these great episodes that will help you run your booster club like a champ. Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer. Today we're talking with Emily Meek. She's the CFO of Mountain Parks Electric and also the founder and CEO of Skull Creek CPA. She provides financial consulting services specializing in the nonprofit sector. She's also built some accounting software and consulted on those types of projects and has a considerable experience in the nonprofit world. Emily, thank you for joining us today. We're excited to talk accounting with you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, share some information. Awesome, awesome. Well, I know that you've got background in a lot of public sector nonprofits, but what are some of the key differences in nonprofit accounting versus for-profit accounting? Yeah, so it's kind of right in the name, right? I mean, I would say the largest difference is that nonprofits are not trying to make a profit like a for-profit business. They exist really to serve a particular cause or community, and the accounting practices are really geared towards that. So they're geared toward tracking and reporting the activities that support the organization's mission. And typically, like, you don't see profit on the statements, right? It's like they use other words, right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, a few other differences would be the financial statements are different from a nonprofit to a for-profit, where you would typically see an income statement in a for-profit. You would see a statement of activities in a nonprofit. And a statement of financial position would be similar to a for-profit's balance sheet. And to your question, profit really isn't in a, a lot of the verbiage. It's, I, we call it surplus, typically, on a nonprofit income statement. There's a few other key differences. Nonprofits, most of their revenue sources come from various sources you wouldn't see on a for-profit income statement, such as donations, grants, fundraising activities. The taxation is very different from a nonprofit to a for-profit. Generally, nonprofits are going to be exempt from paying federal and state income taxes. They also may be exempt from state sales tax, but they still have to comply with other taxing requirements like payroll taxes, similar to a for-profit. So you're just talking the tax return for a nonprofit. You're really, is a whole different even form, right? Like we file a tax return for a business, the tax return for a nonprofit, it's an entirely different system. Yeah. So the, at the end of the year, nonprofit is going to file a form 990, which really focuses on the organization's activities, governance, and financials. So it's kind of an overall picture of the activities of that nonprofit during the year. And they do submit that to the IRS, but it is not for purposes of collecting income tax from the organization. It's more to make sure that they still fit in that nonprofit bucket for the IRS. So making sure that their activities meet the requirements of the nonprofit rather than how much tax they're going to pay. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. Okay, great. 
generally, so we work with a lot of nonprofits, as you know, in the booster club world. And there's just people run everything from a spreadsheet. Let's take one step back. There are (laughs) booster clubs that don't really do any sort of accounting. And then step one is they do a spreadsheet and then they work into an accounting software or something like that. And then all the way up to they have accountants or CPAs that do the accounting work for them. Speaking to all those different levels, what are some general best practices that you could advise? Yeah, I would say the best practices for a booster club are going to be very similar to, or for a nonprofit, are going to be very similar to the same best practices for any organization. So reconciling your bank accounts regularly. That is super important and cannot be something that falls by the wayside. It helps you ensure accuracy and identify any discrepancies. So that is an absolute must. Maintaining accurate records. So whether you're using a spreadsheet or using an accounting software, which I would highly recommend using a software where possible, keeping a deep record of all of your transactions, including your receipts, your invoices, bank statements. So not only keeping track of the physical record of your transactions, but also keeping track electronically somehow of all of the money you're receiving in and all of the money that's being spent. Yeah, I think that best practices, really this is for any organization, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit, it doesn't matter because by protecting your financial assets and having accurate, timely financials is always important no matter what the organization's mission is. So I would say starting with a good system of internal controls, having segregation of duties where possible is a good place to start. It can help prevent errors and deter fraud if you have the right internal controls that make sense for your organization. Using double entry accounting can be is important. Again, it helps ensure accuracy and it can help identify errors. You'll know when you're out of balance. So maintaining record, record keeping. So whether this is physical or electronic, physically maintaining your receipts, your invoices, your bank statements, different things that support the transactions that have taken place during a period of time. And then electronically, whether using a spreadsheet or using an accounting software, which I would hope that most people are willing to use accounting softwares. I mean, you can find some pretty user-friendly options out there that do not overcomplicate tracking your financials, but keeping track of all of your money in and money out, very important. Creating and monitoring your budget is also incredibly important. It's going to outline your expectations for the upcoming year, and you can see where you may have some shortfalls or even surpluses and where you can maybe make new programs or where you maybe need to cut back without a budget. There's really no great way to see that. Timely and regular financial reporting to your board or governing body is very important. That helps them make informed decisions for the organization moving forward. And then, of course, following all the legal and tax requirements required. There's no shortcutting that. And maintaining a solid set of financial records is going to make that much easier for an organization. So for a volunteer, that can be a little overwhelming. (laughs) right? They didn't realize what they stepped into. So 
a lot of the accounting tools and softwares out there seem to help guide the volunteers through most of that process. We talked a little bit in the beginning, we were talking about the differences between a nonprofit and a for-profit accounting, and we talked about some financial statements. So a lot of booster club treasurers are working with a spreadsheet or they're very new to accounting reports in general. Can you give us elementary school version, introductory lesson to accounting reports and which one does what and which would be the best ones to use or look at if I'm a new treasurer? Yeah, so I'll just keep it really simple and we'll just talk about the two main ones. So you have your statement of activities, which is more commonly known as an income statement and across most industries. So people may have heard of an income statement prior to volunteering, but maybe haven't heard it referred to as a statement of activities. So just to clear the air, those are one and the same. The statement of activities is going to show your revenue and your expenses over a period of time. So over a month or over a quarter or a year. This will help the readers of the financial statements understand how the organization is spending the money. So how much revenue they're generating from fundraising or programs, other services that they may have or grants, donations, as well as how much it is spending to accomplish that mission of the nonprofit. That's the income statement. That's the one that is all of your transactional data is going into that on a day-to-day basis. Then you have your statement of financial position, which some volunteers maybe haven't heard to a balance sheet referred to as a statement of financial position, but they've heard of a balance sheet. Again, this is one and the same. Really, the statement of financial position is showing an organization's assets, liabilities, and then the net assets, which are the difference between your assets and liabilities. The balance sheet is, instead of showing that over a period of time, like from this date to this date, it's really showing at a pinpoint in time. So it basically is showing you your assets, which is what the organization owns, things like cash or inventory you might see, accounts receivable you might see, those are all going to be considered assets. Your liabilities are going to be anything that the organization owes to an outside organization. So maybe some sales tax or maybe you have some accounts payable. And then the net assets, again, is just the difference between your assets and your liabilities. That's also called equity. Equity generally includes donations, grants, and your retained earnings, which is what we also call surplus. So that's going to be the profits that have been reinvested into the organization. So from your income statement, anything left over after your revenues and your expenses is going to be your surplus. And that feeds into the balance sheet. I always think of them as like the income statement or the statement of activities. It's the ins and outs and the balance sheet is how much is there right now. Kind of those two perspectives. It's really challenging when you have someone that doesn't have any accounting background step into these treasurer roles and then they're thrown into all these new things and they're just trying to count how many t-shirts they sold. (laughs) So it's always a challenge. What's a best practice on who should have access to accounting systems? I know a lot of people think, oh, it should be one person, only one person should have access. But there are some drawbacks to just limiting that access to one person. So what would you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. One person from an internal controls perspective, one person should not be all overseeing 
person when it comes to financial information. Every organization is going to be a little bit different. There's not really a, a one size fits all for who specifically needs access, but it really should be limited only to those individuals who absolutely need it to perform their responsibilities for the organization. So what that might look like would be maybe the president, maybe the treasurer, and I would hope that there could be a third person just from an internal controls standpoint. Typically, you might want to see two signers or two people that need to authorize any transactions or any sort of spend that the organization is doing. So if you have two people that have signed off on a transaction, you might want to have a completely separate party be the person reconciling your bank accounts. You certainly do not want to ever have the person who spends the money also be the person who's reconciling your bank accounts, obviously, from a controls perspective and just to maintain some protection there. So, yeah, I would say it's hard to say how many people, but really it should be limited, but not so limited that you are then not creating good enough internal controls to protect the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Because accounting information can be sensitive, right? You're looking at who's paid and who hasn't. And so there's some discretion there that you want. But at the same time, it seems like having several sets of eyes. I know in one of the the software applications, they do like a read only on accounting. So there are people who can see it, but they can't make any edits. Their access is limited and that type of thing. We see a lot of theft in booster clubs, mostly at the cash level. What are some things on the accounting side that we can do to limit and avoid that or try to prohibit it if possible? Yeah, so again, this goes back to implementing internal controls where possible. Sometimes with small organizations, you just don't have enough resources to put maybe the strongest internal controls possible in place, right? It's just not possible. There's not enough people to create that segregation of duties. But certainly where possible, having, like we just talked about, having different people authorize transactions, record transactions and potentially reconcile the bank where possible. Cash is always tricky, right? That's a toughie because you have people handling cash and you can't necessarily prevent them from stealing in all cases, but having good software in place, if you do have like a concession stand, for example. So if you're running a concession stand, that's where the cash management piece can be really tricky. One way to mitigate that loss would be to have a start your night knowing how much inventory you have on hand. When people are making sales, hopefully you have a point of sale system. If not, even if it's just tallying things down on a piece of paper, those sales are recorded. So you would expect at the end of the night, if you started with 20 sodas and you have 10 left, you would expect to see the cash there for the 10 sodas that were sold. So it's not a perfect foolproof way, but it is an internal control, tracking your inventory, understanding what's there, knowing what is in the, the people who are collecting the cash should not also be reconciling that cash bank at the end of the night where possible. That's a really yeah. good point. So you should have a, another set of volunteers to come in to count the money from the people that took the money. It's amazing. A lot of times in concession stands, no one rings anything up. So there's no record really of what's sold. 
and people are doing it in their head like a hot dog and a chip and a this is you know $7 and they're making change in their head. And a lot of the booster clubs will tell you, well, if we switch to ringing it up, it would be a lot slower. And I say, if you ever watch somebody standing there trying to add in their head and then make the change in their head, it's much easier to have a little computer screen or something, you know, a device where you can ring it up and do that. And then we're seeing a lot of clubs go cashless. So do you recommend that? Is that something that you would think is better than having the cash, handling the cash? That's an excellent way to mitigate the problem, right? There's no cash changing hands. Those sales are recorded. I would hope that implementing this sort of technology to go cashless nowadays is everywhere. So it shouldn't be too complicated for even a very small booster club to have something, whether it's one of the things that plugs into your phone or an actual point of sale system. That's absolutely a great way to mitigate it. And then at that point, now it's just managing your inventory and making sure that there's not a lot of free things being handed over the counter where you could experience loss in a concession sale type scenario, but at least now you're not actually seeing cash loss. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I was at a parking meter the other day and it had a swipe your credit card and use your app on your phone. And I thought, gosh, we've really gotten to the point where you just really don't need even a quarter anymore to pay the meter, everything's gone cashless. Let's talk a little bit about a budgeting process. So you've got a board, you get a budget. What should that process look like? Should you go through a series of approvals, revisions, and then how strictly should you stick to that budget if you're a nonprofit and that's what's laid out in your bylaws or that's what your processes look like? Yeah, I think that Budgeting, again, I think I, I mentioned earlier, it's so important. Gonna, I think they need to be detailed and they need to be realistic and achievable, right? So that's the first place to start is sort of to make sure that you understand that that's the ultimate goal is to, it needs to be achievable. It needs to be realistic. So starting with sort of identifying your revenue sources for the year is a good place to start. Where do you think, how much in membership fees do you think you're going to get? How much in donations, what types of fundraising events are you going to have, what types of sponsorships, those things. And for the most part, hopefully you'll have some historical detail or some historical experience to go off of to sort of understand what those numbers might look like. Maybe you host the same fundraising events year over year. You kind of know what to expect already. What you might be charging for a ticket, your attendance, it shouldn't be incredibly hard to put together a budget based on history. And then if you're bringing on new programs, bringing on new fundraising events, you can sort of also piggyback on the ones you already have going and you understand, you know, this is what ticket sales are. This is kind of what sort of revenue those are bringing in. This is our expectation on attendance. So that'll help you with any new things maybe that you're bringing on board. Identifying expenses is sort of the same process. You're looking at your historical trends, And maybe, you know, things are, you know, with inflation, this can be a little bit hard, especially over the last couple of years, but you want to put an adder in there potentially to a rising cost, but you're going to have an idea year over year, what your expenses look like. And unless you have anything really new to your organization, your expenses, you should be able to track those 
fairly easily and understand what those might look like for the upcoming year. And then, yeah, putting all that into a spreadsheet, right? Or into an accounting software, if, if you have one that can manage a budget. That obviously seeing it all down on paper by month, understanding what months those expenses or revenues are going to hit. So you understand where you might have shortfalls or surpluses in different months. So that's important to see it all laid out for your entire year and understand here's, if you're not being conservative with your budget and you're estimating that you're going to get an extreme amount of revenue that is, you're not very confident that it's going to happen, I wouldn't put it in your budget or I would have to be a reasonable amount. I want to be overestimating, being overconfident. I would say using a very conservative approach is probably going to be best. Remembering that budgeting is your best guess. It's an estimate. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's just as close as we can get just so we can make future plans and have some sort of guide to help us understand whether or not we are on track or not. And then to your question of how much do you have to stick to that budget? So there may be, depending on the organization and the bylaws and just the, the practices of the board, this may differ from organization to organization. Typically, your budget is what your budget is. You're going to try to stick to that as much as possible. But say there is some large expense that came in that you were not expecting, and that completely throws your budget. Typically, you would try either some way to cut in other areas to account or accommodate for that unexpected expense, or you potentially would go back to your board and say, this happened, what do we do? What do we need to do to drive up revenue to cover this expense? So there's different ways that you can approach a budget that is not on track. Again, it's not gonna be a one size fits all. It really is up to how your board wants to deal with those sorts of unexpected events. So you have a volunteer doing the accounting and it gets to the end of the year and let's just say we're talking about a smaller organization that just needs to do a little postcard tax return so they can fill in the numbers. Would you advise, do they need to seek some outside accounting, a CPA to just stamp the numbers or if they're doing a little internal auditing, they're under the threshold, which I think is around 50,000. What's your advice on that? Well, that one's a little bit tricky. I mean, I think it's if you have a volunteer that's doing the accounting and they have no accounting background, even if it is very simple, it's always a good idea to have an accounting professional or the, whether it's a CPA or even potentially a bookkeeper or someone to come in to basically provide a level of assurance the financials are accurately presented. I think to your example where it's just like a very small, they don't have a lot of revenue or expenses. To me, that's a hard question to answer because I would, I would always err on the side of saying get a professional involved. But if the organization feels very confident about their accounting practices, they've sort of stuck to all of those best practices that we talked about earlier, and they feel like they've kept very good record keeping, they feel like their numbers are very accurate, and there's some confidence there from the board level that we are fairly presenting this, and it's just that little postcard text or reporting that they need to do then I would say, use your best judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk about sales tax. We cover this all the time, but I like to cover it. So just because an organization is tax exempt at the federal level, they may or may not have to pay state sales tax, correct? Yeah, so 
when we're talking about tax exempt at the federal level, we're talking about income tax exempt. So sales tax are completely separate and different income tax. And that is sales tax is driven by your state and local tax authorities. And this is always a fun question because it, it varies from state to state and it varies from your local tax authorities as well might not see it the same way as your state tax authorities. So this is a tricky one. Basically, if you are making it as a booster club, they may or may not, you may or may not need to be collecting sales tax from your customers. I think the best rule of thumb here is it's important to consult with an attorney or an accountant who is knowledgeable about your state and local tax authority rules in this case, because it can be very muddy. Not only will potentially the state say, yes, you're tax exempt and your local authority say, no, you're not, but even certain types of sales within the nonprofit can be treated differently. You may have sales that are tax exempt and other sales that are not. So clear as mud, right? It's yeah. really, <laughs> I don't have a straight answer here because it's going to vary depending on your state. It's going to vary depending on your locality. It's going to vary depending on what you are selling or so, what activity even you are selling those items under. If it's fundraising, it might be tax exempt. If it's not, it might not be. Right. So this is a good area that if you're not wanting to seek professional help anywhere else, this is a great place to seek some professional help to understand it. You can go on the state's website or your local jurisdiction's website and probably find language around whether or not things are taxable, but it can be confusing. So if you don't feel confident about what you're doing, I would definitely recommend that people reach out for help. Let's just skim the surface of 1099. So you're running a nonprofit, a booster club, you're paying some people. Do you need to send out 1099s? Yes, absolutely. So in this particular case, nonprofits are not treated any differently than a for-profit. So if you have made payments to an independent contractor in excess of $600 in aggregate for the year, you are required by the IRS to file a form 1099 for that vendor. So <laughs> this is an area where not only nonprofits fall short, but also for-profits. I mean, this yeah. can be a bit of a tricky one. And even sometimes determining who should get one and who should not, that can be a little bit tricky at times, but it is absolutely a requirement. And it is also a requirement that you file those 1099s by January 31st of the following year. So you have a short window to get it together and make sure that you sent those 1099s along to anyone that should be receiving them. They will then in turn turn around and use those to file their taxes. Got That's it. why the reporting deadline is so short. Got it. That's it. So circling back to our CPA question, the answer is you probably should at least talk to one once or twice and walk through sales tax and 1099s and then also give you some guidelines on your tax return. I think so. I mean, even if it's just that if the board is writing up a financial policy, which is always a great thing to have some guidelines for who should have access, how the financial 
maintained, all of that. Maybe during those first years of organization, this can be a really important step to get some professionals involved just to make sure that you understand where you are regulated or it's a regulatory compliance you have. You don't want, this is definitely not an area that you would want to fall short and certainly not for any long period of time, right? <laughs> you find out 10 years later, oh, you should have been doing this all along. So I would say, yes, bringing in some sort of tax professional or CPA, it would be really important. Are there any outside resources that you would recommend for somebody? They've just gotten nominated to be their treasurer and they're not sure what the next step is. Anything that you would recommend? Yeah, so there's actually a couple books. I hope I don't slaughter her last name. I think it's Sandra Fowl. She wrote a couple books. School Fundraising, So Much More Than Cookie Dough is one that I have referred to when I've been doing research. And then there's another one. This one's actually new. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Booster Club Basics, A Guide to Fundraising and Administration. I think it's new because when I was looking for data two years ago, school fundraising was the one that I was referring to. Those I think would be really great for a volunteer trying to understand the regulations and the different nuances to nonprofit accounting, especially with the focus of either for school fundraising or for booster clubs. And then there's, of course, some good resources out there they may, these might not be great for a total newbie, right? They may get a little bit overcomplicated, but there is a National Council of Nonprofits and they have a website, councilofnonprofits.org, and they have a, a variety of resources and different tools and articles and guides on accounting and financial management specific to nonprofits. There's a, the Nonprofit Quarterly. Their website is nonprofitquarterly.org. And they, similar to the National Council of Nonprofits, they cover a range of topics related to nonprofit management, operations, and accounting, and finance. I think those would be good places to start. And there's always other resources out there. But that's where I would probably start. That's some great feedback. And yeah, we, we hear about school fundraising more than just cookie dough all the time. It's a great resource in the Booster Club world. They do a great job over there at that organization and keeping people up to date. Well, thank you for your time today and walking us through these basics. It's, it's a subject I think we have to be careful. We, if we start digging, we're going to get really deep into it. So we'll keep it at the surface level for everyone. And so in the Booster Club world, we always like to say, okay, what sport or activity did you do in high school? Okay. So I was a competitive snowboarder, actually. So we didn't have Booster clubs for competitive snowboarding. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I did half pipe and slope style. That was my main, I guess we did have fundraising. So yeah. we had, you know, the, the team that I was on, we definitely did. You went fundraising. to tournaments. Yeah, that's funny because we work with hundreds of people in hundreds of various activities. That's the first time I've ever heard of snowboarding. <laughs> so. Where I did them in junior high, but high school, I started the snowboarding. Was- so. Well, it must speak to being located in Colorado. Absolutely. They have ski snowboard teams at the high school level now. They didn't when I was there, but they you live in the mountains. It's one of the things that, that you do, right? Well, Emily, thank you so much. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. 
Thank you, Robin. It was really a pleasure to be here and share some information with you. The Boosted Volunteer is brought to you by Booster Hub. To find out more about Booster Hub and how our app can help you improve communications, increase engagement, raise more money, and manage your Booster Club responsibly, visit www.boosterhub.com. And then make sure to search for Booster Club Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Booster Hub, thanks for listening.